It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. President Ronald Reagan was adjusting to his new life as the United States Commander-in-Chief. Just two months into his presidency, leading the nation included daily itineraries of travel, speaking engagements, and security briefings. On the rainy afternoon of March 30, 1981, President Reagan arrived at the Washington Hilton Hotel to deliver a luncheon address. It had all gone according to plan. After his remarks, President Reagan left the building, walking along a passageway known as the President's Walk. This was a secure path created at the Hilton following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The path was designed so that the president could safely and quickly access his vehicle from the hotel. A mass of people gathered outside, hoping to catch a glimpse of the president as he made his way to the presidential limousine. But one man, hidden among the press corps, awaited with sinister intentions. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. John Hinckley Jr., the man responsible for the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan, who has gone down in infamy as the deranged criminal who would have been responsible for the fifth assassination of a United States president. Hinckley was born to an affluent family in Ardmore, Oklahoma. At a young age, he and his family moved to Dallas, Texas. Hinckley's father was in the oil business and as his success grew, he brought his family to wealthier parts of Dallas. But this social growth would only send young Hinckley into a state of isolation. While his older siblings were hanging out with friends, going on dates, or spending time with a family, Hinckley would stay in his room, writing and listening to music. After high school, Hinckley moved to Los Angeles in an attempt to pursue a career in music. While there, his mental state further deteriorated. He began suffering from delusions and depressive episodes, which separated him from reality. After watching the film Taxi Driver, Hinckley developed an obsession with actress Jodie Foster. Hinckley moved to Connecticut to stalk the young actress. When hand-delivered letters, poems, and phone calls failed to grab her attention, Hinckley developed a plan to impress her by assassinating a president mirroring the plots of the film. On March 28th, Hinckley embarked to Washington, D.C., armed with a six-shot revolver. Joining me now is a man very close to the events which then unfolded. Jeff James is a retired supervisory special agent with the United States Secret Service Presidential Detail, who also served as the case manager for John Hinckley Jr. Jeff, it is such an honor to have you with us today, um, and most importantly, to be able to call you a friend. So tell us the story that we have been waiting for, which is the story of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. Yeah, so I was, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have a unique perspective on this from a couple angles. One was actually knowing the men who were there when President Reagan was shot, along with spending a year as what the Secret Service called the Class 3 agent. And what that meant was I supervised all of the people who we, we classified as class three. And those are people who are clear and present danger to either the president or someone else under protection and even people outside our protection, but show they, they, um, they had violent tendencies. So it was people like John Hinckley, Squeaky Frome, Sarah Jane Moore, Charles Manson, mm. uh, folks like that. So, so it was a, it was a pretty neat insight into, into all these people. But the, the one I actually ended up spending the most time with was John Hinckley. And that was because he was housed in the John Howard Pavilion of St. Eve's Hospital, uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. 
where um, where he was put when he was deemed to be criminally insane. And anytime we he would leave the grounds, they would have excursions for the for the patients there. Secret Service agents would follow him. And that was something I did quite a bit during my time there. Start by telling us a little bit about the life of John Hinckley Jr. What was he like? So um, John Hinckley, he was actually born in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and then his parents moved to Dallas when he was young. And when they really noticed a big change in him was his father was in the oil business and really started to do well. And when John was going into sixth grade, they moved to this very upscale area of Dallas. And um, they had a, you know, a big pool and, uh, you know, this beautiful house. And they noticed in that sixth grade year, John changed elementary schools, that he was very isolated. And more so, he had an older brother and sister, and they were always having friends over and and, you know, having parties and going out with their friends. And John really didn't do that. And they kind of attributed it to the fact that, well, he was in a new school and really didn't know anybody. And, and that created the isolation, which which at the time, I think, would have made sense. But how he reverted into his shell so quickly was what was startling, because prior to that, he was the leading scorer on his YMCA basketball team and the starting quarterback of his peewee football team. So it wasn't like he grew up as an isolated kid. He was active. He and his dad uh, were active in what was called the Indian Guides through the YMCA, which was like the Boy Scouts. They go on, on camping trips and stuff. And they thought, well, let's give him until next year when he's back in junior high with all the kids he knew because he stayed in the same school district. When he's back in junior high with all the all the kids he knows, maybe he'll he'll recover from this. But once junior high came along and his parents saw all the other boys take interest in girls and start to date, and his uh, brother and sister become, you know, being older, become more outgoing and, and have friends over. John really never, really never got into that. Um, and by high school, he was completely isolated. He would come home, uh, go up into his room and just listen to music all night and write in his journal. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those. I think we both like to find, we all, I should say, like to find ways to escape. But it got to the point where he wouldn't even come down to join the family for dinner. When high school ends, um, he decides he wants to go to uh, L.A. and try to make it as a musician. And one of the quotes his father had to him was, you know, John, you you really lack realism. You can't even read music. And his rebuttal was, well, there's a lot of great guitar players who don't read music. So what they decide is he's going to enroll in Texas Tech University. Um, now the parents decide they're going to move. They moved to Evergreen, Colorado. John stays back at Texas Tech, and it really it becomes a series of failed semesters for him. Um, he'd do a couple classes and fail, and then he'd try to go to LA and make it in the music business. He'd come back and take a couple more classes, and it would fail. So when it got to the point where seven years later, where he shoots the president, he still hadn't attained a college degree. But that that's jumping forward a little bit. So. What he told his parents was, hey, I'm going to go to L.A. and just try to make it. And they, wanting to be supportive, tell him yes. Um, he's in and out of contact with them. Um, and remember, this was a time when the phone was attached to the wall, right? <laughs> so you, if you wrote somebody a letter and they chose not to respond or just didn't answer their phone, you you wouldn't hear from them for, for a long time. And they were really concerned about John's well-being at that point. He had been to some counseling prior. And they thought, you know, let just let him chase his dream. Maybe that would help. Can I ask you, Jeff, was yeah. there a diagnosis ever during that time? Has he been to counseling and all of these years had progressed? Had he ever been formally diagnosed with a mental health disorder? No. Um, okay. And look, I think we're a lot better about it now mm -hmm. than we were. Like, I, I remember even, you know, I started my, my professional career as a teacher in 1990. And we, we still, in 1990, called kids slow, right? Because we right. didn't understand the the spectrum of autism. So I think that what the, um, or I'm sorry, from what I understand that what the therapist thought he needed at the time was just tough love. In mm -hmm. fact, we get to a point in John's development where he, he's told by his parents, uh, he's told his parents are told by a therapist, just cut him off. Like, don't give him any more money. Don't let him back in the house and or anything like that. So there may have been some kind of misdiagnosis, but at the time it was just, they pretty much just said he's a lazy guy. Mm -hmm. um, with, with delusions of grandeur. Um, so he is out in LA and his parents are worried about him, but then this great thing happens. He meets an actress named Lynn Collins and his world turns around. He starts going to the gym, getting himself in shape. 
he starts writing more. He becomes real excited about not only his prospects of living life with Lynn, but also, um, but also his, his ability to make it either through writing or through music. Uh, he's starting to write, um, like screenplays and stuff like that. Now they're trying to make some money. So remember Lynn Collins, because she becomes a very important part later. So what he wanted his parents to do was Lynn was flying all over the country, mostly LA and New York for her acting gigs. And he said, Hey, I want to follow her. And his parents tried to say, well, if your relationship with her is going to last, it'll last through some distance. Like if she's doing a, a show off Broadway somewhere for three months, you guys can be apart for three months. And he really balked at this. So they, they for a while decided they were going to pay for it because they saw this, this just huge transition in him, how he became a different person when she was around. And he told them, like, when she's in New York, I'm meeting with agents in New York. And when she's in L.A., I'm meeting with agents in L.A. I'm really trying to make it. So for a long time, they tolerated it. Um, but after a while, they just said, no, like, we're not going to keep keep just bankrolling you to, to follow Lynn all over the place. So he took a couple negative steps to to continue to follow, to, to tell them he was following Lynn around. He sold his car. And he actually stole some rare coins from his dad one, one time when he was home and he pawned them and used them to follow Lynn around. And once his parents finally said that's enough, that's when his behavior became more erratic and he would disappear sometimes for months at a time. Um, eventually, they cut him off completely. And even at one point when he came to visit them in Colorado, they made him stay in a hotel at the suggestion of the therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, again, just, just being the whole idea of tough love. And there was the up and down part that happened in the relationship, right? He'd call and say, Lynn and I broke up. I'm back in the doldrums. Oh, we got back together. So his mom, Joanne, wanted to be more supportive than the dad. You know, his dad was a old school, hard ass kind of guy who pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. And so there was a little bit of uh, going back and forth with the parents there of how they should treat this. But they they both decided at one point he he had to find a way to make it on his own. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Okay, so Hinckley's mental state was obviously in a, an extremely bad place. How did his delusions evolve? One of the things that happened, a pivotal thing that happened while John was in L.A. was he saw a movie called Taxi Driver and Taxi Driver starred Robert De Niro, a young Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle and a very young Jodie Foster, who played uh, a 14 year old prostitute named Iris. And John Hinckley becomes obsessed with this movie. And after the assassination attempt, he tells investigators that he saw the movie 15 times. Mm. Now, let me tell you, bad guys minimize. If I, if I arrest you for breaking into cars and I ask you how many cars you broke into and you tell me five, you probably broke into 20. You're just trying to minimize. So if John Hinckley is saying he saw that movie 15 times, he probably saw it 30 times. And it becomes a true obsession of his to the point where he starts to dress like Travis Bickle, um, wears an army fatigues jacket. He buys the same kind of gun Travis Bickle had, a big 44 revolver. He even uh, starts to drink this peach brandy that Travis Bickle drank. Um, so his, his obsession with this movie becomes real and it leads to this obsession with Jodie Foster. So Jodie Foster becomes just a pure fixation to him that he would carry into life even after the assassination attempt. And we'll talk about that coming up later. But this all leads to the point that on March 24th, what, that was March 24th, 1981 was the last contact his parents have with John Hinckley. Um, he told his parents he was returning to California to, to hang out with Lynn. And six days later, he's in Washington, D.C., where he shoots the president. In fact, that was one of the mother's, his mother's reactions when she saw on the news that the president was shot. And before they announced it on the news, she actually got a call from a reporter at the Washington Post that said, do you have any comment about your son shooting the president? And her reaction was, he couldn't have been there. He's in California. But a couple things came out after John Hinckley was arrested. And we'll, we'll go to the, to the event next because these things are important. One was that um, he had an unhealthy 
obsession with that whole taxi driver thing and Jodie Foster, especially. That was one thing that was found out. He wasn't traveling the country to follow Lynn around. He was traveling the country, stalking Jodie Foster, stalking President Carter, and again, stalking President Reagan. He, in fact, he was arrested in Nashville, Tennessee in October of 1979 for trying to get on a plane with a gun. And it was the day President Carter was there. And we'll talk about those plans more a little bit later. But remember, I mentioned Lynn Collins, Lynn Collins, who his mother actually said, even though she never met Lynn Collins, she felt a real true closeness to her and kinship with her um, because she was who brought John out of his shell and made him into a new person. Well, Lynn Collins never existed. He made her up. And he used that getting money to follow Lynn around as a way to get money to follow Jody Foster all over the place. In fact, we know he was going up to Yale and getting into her dorm and sliding poems under her door and, and everything like that. I guess back then you could just walk into dorms and <laughs> and uh, stalk people. So, so during that time, then during the active stalking of Jody Foster, was there any did she have knowledge of this? Did was there any uh, law enforcement repercussion to him at any point as he was actively passing notes underneath? We have the arrest uh, trying to bring a gun on the plane. But was there anything formalized um, by law enforcement with the stalking of Jody? No, because, you know, she was probably he probably wasn't the only person that was doing this. You know, by right. that time, she's 19. She's a pretty girl. She's famous. He probably wasn't the only I mean, you know, you know how it is being in the public eye. He's probably not the only weird notes you get is from one guy that she was probably getting them from a bunch. Uh, when she was interviewed about this, she only really spoke about it once. Um, she said that she knew of him. He had called one time and he had left notes and poems and stuff, but she said she never laid eyes on him. Okay. So um, it wasn't even like anything where he approached her. So he went as far as to leave a note in his hotel room in Washington, D.C., where he professed her love, his love to her, and said, you know, you're the reason why I'm going to shoot the president. I'll probably die in this attempt. But if I do know, and I'm paraphrasing, it was a long letter, you know, no, die knowing that I love you. Um, you know, most guys send flowers or chocolate. Not this guy. He's he's going all out. He's going to he's going to shoot the president. So how that came about was he ended up he was actually in up at um, was at Yale University just prior to that. He came down to Washington the night before got a hotel room, looked in the newspaper and saw the president was going to be at the, at the Washington Hilton the next day. And that's when it clicked. And he said, all right, I'm, I'm going to go find a way to try to shoot the president. Now, where the Secret Service is concerned, that day was just going to be like any normal day. It, it was what we call an in-town movement where the president just leaves the White House, drives to somewhere in town and comes back to the White House. Uh, the president was giving a speech to the AFL-CIO and um, everything went off as it should. And as the president was leaving the Washington Hilton, he walked out of the, of the side entrance and uh, John Hinckley secreted himself in with the news. There was a rope and stanchion set up or with the news folks. And they set the press behind that rope and stanchion. And John Hinckley just went up and stood there. Nobody told him he couldn't be there. So that's, that's where he stayed. And, and he was able to get um, surprisingly and shockingly close and as the president was walking to the to the limousine, you know, people were yelling, Mr. Reagan, Mr. Reagan. And if you remember the video, the president was waving when the first mm -hmm. shot went off. And John Hinckley shot. Um, he fired six shots in two and a half seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, his first shot hit President Secretary Jim Brady in the forehead, mm -hmm. and he immediately drops to the ground. Um, then Officer Delahanty from the uh, from the Washington, D.C. police was hit in the neck. The third shot was um, a Secret Service agent named Tim McCarthy, who I spoke to about this. Uh, when I asked him, I said, you know, what went through your through your mind? He said, well, I heard the shots, but I never saw a gun. He said, so I just turned toward the shots and tried to make myself as big as possible. And if you ever watch the video, when he did that, he was right in front of the president and he got shot in the abdomen by the third bullet. The fourth bullet, the limousine door was open, hit the bullet resistant glass and just died there. It shattered the glass a little bit. But the glass is pretty tough, so it stopped dead there. The fifth bullet that hit the president was actually would even be something a little bit hard to replicate. So when here's the body of the car and then you open the door and it creates a little bit of a gap between the door and the, and the body of the car, John Hinckley's fifth shot hit the side of the limousine. And when it did, it flattened out like a dime 
And as the president was being pushed into the car by the special agent charged named Jerry Parr, that bullet went in under his armpit. Um, it shattered his ribs and, and lodged in his left lung. By the time he was firing his sixth shot, an agent named Dennis McCarthy, there were two McCarthys working that day, had dove across the press and was grabbing him and had sent his sixth shot errant across the street where it hit the hotel across the street. So as soon as the shots ring out, Agent Parr and a guy named Ray Shattuck, they grab the president, they shove him in the limousine. Um, they hurry up and they slam the door. And look, one of the things in, in the Secret Service is we don't stick around to talk about it, right? When, when we're teaching people now run, hide, fight, mm-hmm. the Secret Service, we always ran. Like we are getting out of Dodge with the president. So the shots ring out, they throw the president in the car and they take off. Um, on the way there, um, the agent in charge, uh, Jerry Parr said, you know what, let's just go back to the White House. They called back to the White House and they said, hey, you know, there's been a shooting. We're bringing the president back. So they open all the gates. So whichever way they decide to come back, they'll have a, a clear line just to drive into the White House. So uh, Agent Parr gets on his knees in front of the president and he's sweeping you know, his hands over him looking for blood. And he's like, sir, are you OK? And he goes, I think you broke my ribs when you landed on me. And so he sits the president up and he's like, okay. And, um, and he goes, and I cut my lip and the president takes out a napkin that he had from the, uh, from the event that day, the lunch, and he dabs his lip. Well, agent Parr noticed it as a very red, frothy, oxygenated blood. And he said, sir, let me, let me see. And he, he looked in the president's mouth and he could see blood gurgling in the president's uh, mouth. So he knew something was wrong. He didn't know if maybe he did break the president's ribs and he punctured a lung. But at that point, he just made the decision, let's just go to the hospital. So they decide they're going to go to George Washington Hospital. Well, one of the funny things that happened on, on the way there, if there's something we can laugh about in all this, is the agent driving the limousine was named Drew Unruh. And Agent Unruh calls the, the hospital and says, hey, uh, this is Agent Unruh, the Secret Service. We're bringing the president. There's been a shooting. And the nurse on the other end, I don't know why she thought this, said, hey, kid, this is a dedicated law enforcement line. You're going to get in trouble playing these pranks. And she hangs up on him. <laughs> So they kind of say the heck with it. They show up, you know, they're, they're going as fast as they can. Uh, they take the president in the hospital. And when they get there, he immediately collapses. As soon as they cross the threshold, he insisted on walking and um, agent Parr reached out a hand to him to get him out of the car and he waved him off. He insisted on walking in, but he collapsed immediately. So they take him, they put him on a gurney. They, they cut all his clothes off. And all they know right now is that, He's saying, I can't breathe, and his blood pressure is dropping. So they're looking around. Nobody's seeing blood. And um, and one of the ways that everybody was fortunate that day was there was a very savvy nurse working, old school nurse who had actually been a nurse in Vietnam. And she had seen all kind of atypical gunshot wounds because gun- gunshots don't, wounds don't always look like you see on TV mm. or the movies. Um, and so she lifts up the president's arm, left arm, and looks under it. She says, um, oh, I have a bullet wound here. And all it looked like was if you took a knife and put like a one-inch slit in someone's skin. Because like I said, remember, it flattened out like a dime and it went in that way. So now they realize what they have. They are able to put a chest tube in because the bullet collapsed his lung. It re-expands the president's lung and immediately he goes, he's able to breathe and his blood pressure starts to come back up. So now he's stabilized. Uh, they take him in. Uh, they do surgery, and, and of course, um, they save the president's life. So while all that's happening, Secret Service agents and police officers had jumped on John Hinckley. Um, they disarm him, and they grab him, and they take him into a uh, into a, a marked uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, Metro PD car, and they throw him in the car, and in the back seat is Dennis McCarthy, who's a Secret Service agent, John Hinckley, and a Metro PD um, police officer. And as they start to drive away, because uh, also on everyone's mind, isn't just this guy just shot the president, but Jack Ruby is also on everyone's mind, right? Mm-hmm. We got to get this guy out of here before somebody comes up, puts a bullet in his head. Now we have no answers, much like we are left with, with the JFK assassination. Um, and if you remember the time too, we had just come out of the Iran uh, hostage crisis and we were still embroiled in the Cold War, so nobody knew the, what what farther-reaching effects there may be to this to this attack. So when they get him in the car, they kind of look at each other and they say, "Well, the DC Metro cop says, well, we should take him to your place because you're the Secret Service and he shot the president." And Agent McCarthy thinks, 
we, we hand off shooting. Um, anytime someone tries to attack someone under Secret Service protection, it gets handed over to the FBI. So he's starting to think maybe you should take him to the FBI. So their next thought is, well, where can we just be safe? So they go to the headquarters of the Metro DC Metro PD because they know there's a bunch of good guys there and a bunch of guns. And if this is some large scale attack and people are going to come at some point and try to rescue him, now we can fight them off. Mm. So that's where they take him and they start to question John Hinckley. And everyone's immediate question to him is is exactly what you'd expect. Why do you hate the president? And you know, he kind of hums and haws for a while. And finally he says, I don't hate the president. I love Jody Foster. And they're all kind of like, what are you, what are you talking about? And look, they're all a bunch of old guys like me. She was a 19 year old actress. Nobody really knew. Like it'd be like asking me to name the guys in one direction or something. Like, I don't know who they are. Right? So, um, so finally someone goes, wait a minute. Do you mean Jody Foster, the actress? And he goes, yep. Like she's my girl. And they're like, holy crap. Like, so they're starting to realize there's there's probably some form of mental illness involved here, but they also realize we better make sure she's still alive. So the FBI calls up to Connecticut. They get somebody to go and make sure she's okay, and, and she is. Um, but that's when the whole thing starts to come out of him saying, yeah, that's why I did this, because I wanted to impress her. And then, they, of course, when they go search his hotel room, they find the note, um, and, uh, and it's, it's all pretty clear what his motivation was. Now, based off of what happened, and, and this is kind of an aside from dealing with John Hinckley, you know, the Secret Service made several significant changes in its operations just based off of that one event. And and we and we you know and all of law enforcement try to do this. Like we try to get better and, and make things make our, our security plan and our training better. Sometimes it comes off the back of a tragedy or the back of a significant incident, but we, we still try to do that. And one of the things is um Remember I told you, Agent Unruh called the hospital and they said, hey, knock it off. And they hung up on him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we do now is wherever the president's going, we'll designate a level one trauma unit. And that's where we'll take him if if he gets stung by a bee or if he gets shot. That's where we're going. And we'll post an agent there for the time that the president's on the ground. So even if it's several nights, agents will be there all through the night and they'll have a dedicated phone and dedicated radio communication. So if something happens, we can call ahead and everything will be ready. Because one of the things that almost went wrong when President Reagan was shot was there weren't any doctors around, like somewhere at lunch, one guy went home. Um, so it took some time to get these, these trauma surgeons and the thoracic surgeon who was going to work on him there to, to actually do the work. So now we've mitigated that by making sure an agent stays at the hospital. And of course the, the medical staff will stay around as well in case there'd be an emergency. Um, the other thing we did, remember I told you John Hinckley secreted himself in with the press. Uh, we keep an agent with the press now who all just monitors like that they're, they're credentialed. They have their hard uh, passes. Anybody tries to sneak in, they're bounced. And the press, I will say, is very good about policing themselves. I, I did one or two trips as a press agent where like somebody would tap me on the shoulder and be like, hey, none of us know who this guy is. And we would be able to figure out if he belonged. And what it was each time was it was someone from the local press who was added into the pool by the White House staff. And they just they just needed to make sure we knew about it. Um, the other thing you'll see is you, you'll, you will rarely ever see the president come and go and open in the open like President Reagan was that day. Um, we'll either arrive underground if we can. Uh, if we can't, we build these giant tents. And they're not ballistic, of course, but it, it eliminates line of sight issues. And we can secure that area so nobody could get into that area and get as close as, as John Hinckley got that day. And the last thing we, we added or the way we changed was, so the shots ring out. Four people are shot. They take the president. They run. But what's left behind is three people with bullet wounds uh, laying on the ground. So what we do now is we keep it. We at least one ambulance with every presidential motorcade. One's dedicated to the president, and then the other one can be dedicated to any collateral damage that would happen if there would be an attack. Uh, because it took, it wasn't a quick response for um, EMS to get there. You know, while these three men were were shot and, and laying on the ground with their wounds. So, um, so those are three of the, the changes that the Secret Service made um, that try to fill in the gaps of what could have been better that day when, when President Reagan was shot. So John Hinckley, there's no doubt he did it. It's on film. The gun was pried out of his hand. He's not even denying it. So he goes on trial, and the trial doesn't happen until June of 1982. 
Before we get to this next chapter, can I ask a few questions? I want to make sure that I remember just a few quick staccato questions. Yeah. The first is, since all my information comes from the movies, um, talk to me about the security risk about having all of those gates open at the White House. Now, ultimately, to your point, the president went was taken to the hospital. However, when they thought he was coming to the White House with all the gates open, at that point, you didn't know whether it was a lone wolf. So I'm surprised without, of course, divulging your your security and strategic yeah. uh, classified information. Why would every single gate be open just in case this guy was the lure and there would have been a full blown attack on the actual White House or something? Yeah. We don't just open them and leave them. So we would open them and then our uniform division officers would be out there manning them like they'd be securing them with with long guns and shotguns and everything else and and also blocking vehicles so all that would happen is if we see the limousine coming we just back that car up and it can zip right in and then we close the gates so they weren't sitting open because those those heavy gates they open like this (laughs) you know so so they were opened but blocked and then we could quickly back a car up get him in and then so so for me to say they just left them open was almost a almost a misnomer. They were they were open but still secured by okay. personnel. Yeah. My second question, given that the bullet, which seems to be, you know, a one in a million chance, came ricocheted through that little opening between the door and the mm-hmm. the frame, are there now in the presidential um in the beast and the like, is there a a protective cover that even when the door is open covers that hole? Sort of um, like, you know, the the window bug things. Yeah. Was that a change uh, there, that was made? There really isn't. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know enough about car. You know a lot more about cars <laughs> than I do. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if something like that would be, um, would be doable, but we are taught to stand in the gap in both caps of the door. Copy. We're taught to stand in the gap that, that it opens to. And we're taught to stand in that gap that's created between that. So you'll see, a lot of times it's the um, it's the detail leader who's holding the door and then you'll see two of us standing in the gaps. Wow. So that's that's how we mitigate it, because I'm guessing by now there's smarter people than me. They would have figured out a way to block that. Um, so it's it's us that they used to block it. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. I note, and this is really unfortunate, frankly, the Washington Hilton is referred to colloquially and in print as the Hinkley Hilton. I've stayed there a million times. I'm sure you have too. It's where the White House Correspondents Association dinner is held every year. And I have only heard it referred to as the Hinkley Hilton, which is so, so it reminds me of the Larry Singleton bill in California, which is an amplification of the perp, of the criminal, rather than it being referred to as the Washington Hilton or the President Reagan Hilton, which it should. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... You know, it's it's kind of in the in this word, the zeitgeist now, right? Yeah. And and we're never going to be able to change it. Um, but the the fandom that goes and this is something I was going to talk to talk about down the down the road, but we can address it now. The fandom that comes with that is surprising. You know, John Hinckley has almost fifty two thousand Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. I have like thirty that's seven <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um the amount of mail he got at St. Eve's, um, the fact that he was actively dating when he was in a, in a facility for the criminally insane, that the fandom is, is something that, uh, that is always startling to me. Um, and, and we would, you know, we'd see his mail and we'd read it. Girls would send him pictures and, and, you know, um, so it's, it's almost, it, it is bothersome that carries his moniker now, but you know, it's, I think it's way too, way too late to change it now. At the risk of this being a, a sort of simpleton question, um, why was the EMS response so slow for the collateral damage on that day? Was it because it was just, everything was locked down because the president had just been shot or was it a standard, slow, urban response? Yeah, I think it was just that. I think people called. Uh, it wasn't even 911 then. You know, they called the emergency number and right. um, and they got ambulances there as quickly as they could. And when I say it was slow, it was probably three and a half minutes but, mm-hmm. you know, when you're laying on the ground with a bullet in three and a half minutes, seems like a long time. Yeah. Um, so, again, we're just we're able to mitigate that now by by keeping keeping folks on board with us. You know, it's sort of it was a coincidence that you mentioned earlier that whether the president is stung by a bee or shot, there's always a level trauma, a, a designated level one trauma center where there's a constant presence. 
in my EMT certification class many years ago, I'll never forget, um, one of the examples, the anecdotes by the chief who was presenting to us, a fire department chief, was that a guy was out you know, mowing his lawn, a, a suburban, well-to-do neighborhood, got stung by a bee and um, had a very quick sort of catastrophic reaction to it. Didn't know if he was allergic to bees or, or whatnot. You know, he calls 911, they package him up. He gets to the hospital. It's a bullet wound. He had oh, been shot uh, by an errant random shot. And the whole point is that you never, he, he, you know, ow, that must be a bee because he was, he was sort of at that point rationalizing it. Um, but to kind of, that's what actually popped in my mind when you talked about the bullet entrance wound being so slim and, you know, thank God truly for that Vietnam trained combat nurse who had that experience to know that everything can present very differently. And there's no such thing as a normal situation. There's no such thing as a predictable wound. Um, The only thing predictable is that it's probably going to be surprising and unique. Yeah. And when you talk about unique, as I said, I was blessed and fortunate to know some of these men who were involved with it. And I talked to um, Ray Shattuck, who helped Jerry Parr shove the president into the the limousine. In fact, he grabbed Agent Shad or uh, Agent Parr's feet threw his feet in and then slammed the door and then he jumped in front and they took off. And Ray told me that when they took the bullet out of the president, it's evidence, right? So they yeah. they put it in a cup and they handed it to Agent Parr and Agent Parr handed it to him and he was looking at it. He said it again, it was flattened out like a dime, but it was kind of spiky around the edges and it was all black around the edges. And when he asked later, I guess the evidence technicians what that was, they said it was the paint from the limousine that it, it scraped that wow. thin layer of paint off when it contacted and then went into the president. So mm. um, he said, you know, that image is just stuck in his head of seeing the black flakes around the outside of it that, wow. that were the paint. Um, so, right. yeah. So um, again, we're left with no, no doubt that John Hinckley committed this crime. So all that's left is decide whether or not he's responsible for it or not. Now, John Hinckley decided that he was going to, um, He's going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And on June 21st, 1982, um, at U.S. court there in Washington, D.C., he was found indeed to be not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, he was sentenced to uh, be confined to the um, John Howard Pavilion there in, in St. Eve's Hospital. But this verdict caused such an outcry. Um, and, and even uh, people like Strom Thurmond and, and future Vice President Dan Quayle spoke out very strongly uh, from their positions of power about something had to change with this, that you could shoot the president in the middle of the street and not go, not go to prison for it. Um, and, you know, there were theories, not theories, but um, systems of pleading not guilty by reason of insanity going all the way back to the 1800s, the monotonous rule, and, mm-hmm. and they moved them as time went on. But these were the most, what came next were the most significant changes. And a couple of those were, what it came down to was if you could formulate a plan like John Hinckley did, which he clearly showed, right? He was following, he was following two presidents around. And we found that we found that to be true. Like when he said, Oh, I didn't care if I shot president Reagan, I was going to shoot president Carter. And we're like, Oh, you're crazy. And then we, we, I say, we, the secret service actually looked at video and photographs from appearances that president Carter had where John Hinckley said he was, and we were able to find him in the crowd. So he was stalking two presidents. He was stalking Jody Foster. Uh, he wrote the note saying what his intention was. He bought the gun. He loaded the gun, so on. So everything that went with it, right? Read the paper to know where the president was going. So he was able to formulate a plan, which if the parameters for pleading not guilty by reason of insanity were in place today, he would have gone to federal prison because it wouldn't have stood. But back then, they were able to convince a jury, a jury that he was insane. So everybody's outraged. The changes come. And a lot of change was made on the state levels. So there's actually four states now. It's Utah, Montana, Kansas, and Idaho that have no no iteration of pleading guilty by reason of insanity. They don't even allow it. Um, most states have gone to uh, what's what's called the um, GBMI, uh, guilty by mental mental illness. And what that allows is for you to be found, you're still found guilty. And you go and you see you you receive help. If you end up recovering from your mental illness, you are then sent to a conventional correctional facility for the rest of your term. You're not released like someone would be if they were found 
uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, like we saw John Hinckley was eventually released. So it was a change that that came over time, but it was really one that was spurred by the outrage that came that not just you know everyone in D.C., but everyone around the country saw that this guy shot the again literally shot the president in the middle of the street and was able to and was able to go essentially live in an apartment rather than go behind behind bars in a federal prison. Um, so, and that leads to where, where kind of my role came in in the role of the secret service was when John Hinckley was, was there, when he was confined to the John Howard pavilion, um, not just him, but all of the folks there. And, and at the time I was dealing with him, there were 16 people living in the pavilion who were all deemed criminally insane. And they were, um, they were allowed excursions. They would go to the movies, they'd go to the bowling alley, they'd go to Rock Creek Park. And I will tell you, it was really surreal being at a bowling alley, watching John Hinckley bowl with his with his friends with 15 other criminally insane people. And four, four lanes down, there's a family there, you know, there's two parents and two kids. And they don't know, not only do they not know that John Hinckley's there, the man who shot the president is there, but they don't even know like, that this group of people that they're they're 50 feet from or are all deemed criminally insane. We went with him. The Secret Service always trailed John Hinckley just for the two reasons, very simply, to make sure he didn't try to elope and then to make sure that he um, that nobody tried to if somebody recognized him, they didn't try to retaliate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, come over and punch him in the face or something because of what he did to the president. But it was some surreal times watching him just in, engage with people out in society. Um, when his mother moved to Richmond so she could be closer to him. And when he was granted weekend, weekend leaves, I would usually follow him down I-95. His sister would come pick him up. I'd follow him down 95 till we got to route three in Northern Virginia, which was where our Richmond office started. And they would always stop at the same Wendy's. And when they stopped at the Wendy's for lunch, I'd meet up with our agents from the Richmond office and they would take over his surveillance for the rest of the weekend. And it was, it was amazing. You know, he's, he's there ordering food from this, you know, 17, 18 year old kid working at Wendy's and they have no idea that the person they're waiting on shot the president. So it was, uh, yeah, some surreal moments, uh, just seeing him out, out among the citizens, you know, knowing, knowing on our side, what he had done. Did you have conversations with him at all? Did you interact with him and get to know his personality? Did he get to know you? Just rarely. He knew me as a familiar face, but we rarely, rarely conversed. He, he most, we mostly liaised with uh, the folks who were with them from the hospital. Like they would call us and say there's going to be the excursion. Mm-hmm. We'd meet up with them and, and we'd go. Um, but there were sometimes like, you know, if, if they were at the movies and, you know, I'd go out to the snack bar to get a drink and he'd come out and he'd be there and it'd be like, hey, how you doing? Oh, good, John. How are you? Good. You know, just more more small talk than really getting to know each other. And John, he um, he did carry his obsession, as I mentioned earlier, much past his time of incarceration. Uh, one of the things that could happen was his his room could be searched at any time, uh, if not by us, by the staff of the hospital, and they would find you know pictures of Jody Foster. Uh, one of the things we we would try to monitor when he was out was if he went to a bookstore, was he looking at um, entertainment magazines in an attempt to try to find pictures of her was he looking at books about the reagan family or or looking for articles about the reagan family things like that because he had before he was granted his release he had applied for it a bunch of times and in my role as a class three agent i would work with the u.s attorney about all right what can we say to the judge that's going to keep him confined so any any of that evidence we could get of like yeah we found three pictures under his bed of jody foster and we saw him looking through entertainment magazines, you know, the assumption is he's looking for pictures of her. You know, we could all use that as, as ammunition to the judge to say he's clearly still obsessed. And then we could kind of say to the judge, you know, you can grant him his freedom, but what, what's your answer going to be to Jody Foster when she opens the door one day and he's standing there. So as long as we can continue to show that that was some ammunition for us to keep him, keep him confined. On that note, what, did it feel like for you to have him released quite recently and and to have for example in his current wikipedia page it it defines his vocation just in one word 
musician. Yeah. Yeah. He's been reinvented um, socially and culturally. And he was enjoying freedoms, to your point, long before that. My tax dollars were paying for him to enjoy bowling, which is a whole other episode of my reaction to that. Um, it's appalling. And what did it feel like for you as a Secret Service agent to have him released back into the public? So, look, in, in my heart, law enforcement, you know, we need to be about restorative justice. We need to about, be about second chances. But I also uh, believe that there are things you, you that you can do that are so egregious that you forfeit that. You forfeit the second chance. You forfeit the benefit of the doubt. You forfeit all of it. So it was hard because I, by that time, I had gotten to know these these men who saved the president's life. And I knew how personal it was to them. In fact, one of them, a guy named Joe Trainer. Uh, is, is someone I still consider a mentor. Um, you know, he was, he was one of my first bosses when I came in the secret service. And, uh, and I know what a, what a seminal, not seminal, but what a impactful day that was for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you his story in a minute. Cause it's when you talk about the weird, weird tales within the tale, that's one of them. But to me, it was just um, like, to, I think if you, if you said to any normal person, Hey, you know, you can shoot the president, as, as I've said probably half a dozen times now, shoot the president in the middle of the street, and someday you're going to be able to walk free and try to play concerts and sell your music. You know, does that sound right? I got to believe that pretty much everybody you're going to say that to is going to say, no, it doesn't sound right at all. Yeah. Um, so even beyond the fact that my heart is so much connected to the mission of, of protecting these men and women, I I just don't, don't think it's right. And, and like I said, I... I'm big on second chances. I'm big on not being overly punitive. But again, this this wasn't he didn't rob a liquor store. Um, He shot four people in the middle of the street and one of them was the president. So and it was an intentional targeted act that was pre-planned and premeditated. And, you know, none of it was an accident. So that's that's where I stand on that. So. But this gentleman I got to know most of, of everybody who worked that day was I mentioned him earlier, Joe Trainer. So one of the weird things that happened that day was, so when you're on the president's detail, you're assigned a number one through five uh, by seniority. So number one's the most senior, and then it goes down from there. And that determines what position you'll work. It determines where you sit in the motorcade. It determines what position you work, if the president's going to work a rope line or where you go in any of these formations we do. And it just makes it very simple for the shift leader to say, all right, he's going to the rope line. Everybody knows exactly where to go. Or, hey, let's do a halo formation or a diamond formation. Everybody knows exactly where to go. It's almost like a choreographed dance or a football play or a basketball play. So Joe and Tim were both very senior that day. And they both had uh, Tim McCarthy who ended up getting shot. So Joe Trainer and Tim McCarthy who got shot were both very senior. And they both had a bunch of paperwork to catch up on. So they both wanted to stay back and work in the radio room that, that we call horsepower. And that's it's a room underneath the Oval Office where all our Secret Service radios are. That's our down room where we go. Uh, if it's your turn to be off post when the president's in the Oval Office, that's where you can all get off your feet for a half hour or whatever. So Joe wins the coin toss. So he's like, I'm going to stay back and get my paperwork done. Well, Joe would have been right in the same position that Tim McCarthy was when Tim got shot. And Tim, by Joe's own admission, is about five inches taller than than Joe. So that, that bullet that struck Tim in the upper abdomen would have hit Joe in the chest. So, so Joe was pretty lucky that day. And he also went on to hit the Pennsylvania lottery. So talk about being the luckiest guy (laughs) you could ever meet. Um, But he's a, he was, he's a great guy. He was a great boss. A lot of things I do now as a, as a, as a chief of police, I, I still do, you know, based on things he taught me. So uh, so I'm glad he I'm glad he won the coin toss that day to be around to help me in my career. So, tell us about the transfer of power that occurred. Um, at what point did it occur, and how did that how did that play out amongst the Secret Service? So, if, if you remember, a- anybody who's as old as I am is probably going to remember the the big gaffe that happened at the White House with. One of the things started was technology wasn't like it was today. They had trouble getting hold of the vice president. He was he was on Air Force Two. Now that's that's so simple. Uh, right. It's an easy call. It's a video conference. Whatever. It's it's instantaneous communication with Air Force One, Air Force Two, in the limousines wherever these people are. It's instantaneous. Of course, back then 
you know, in, in 1981, it wasn't wasn't like that. So they had trouble getting hold of the of the vice president. It was going to take some time for him to get back to D.C. So there was a lot of question about who's making the decision at the White House. And I don't you're you're not old enough to remember. But if you would ever watch a documentary about it or people old enough to remember, remember Alexander Haig standing up and saying, I'm in charge here at the White House. And and he was wrong. It wasn't his turn in succession. But as far as the Secret Service goes, um, we knew the vice president was safe because he was under the protection of his detail. Um, the president was going to be incapacitated because of the surgery, which which does leave a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what also happens is the succession planning. So people like the Speaker of the House mm-hmm. and trickling down to Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Treasury, blah, blah, blah. They were all gotten, gathered up and secured in case, uh, in case, you know, if this was a farther reaching plot, like we saw against Abraham Lincoln, where these people want to just cut off the, the whole top of the head of um, the whole head of the, of the government. Uh, we made sure that those folks were safe um, to, so in case there'd be any other, any other attempts. Um, and that's how it went until the vice president got down. He was able to establish um, that he was going to be the decision maker until the president was out of his level of incapacitation. And then of course, whenever the president recovered, um, even before coming back to the White House, he was back in charge of everything. And can I ask you a minutia detail, which is at what point did that conversation happen where transfer of power needs to occur right now? Was it upon the president collapsing in the lobby or was it upon um, anesthesia and to go into general surgery? Oh, you know, that part, I'm not sure. Copy. Um, but I would I would say that, you know, there were people around the president, whether it was um, you know, whether it's his military aide or whether it's his, his chief of staff, they're the people who are going to make those decisions. It's really not a Secret Service decision anyway. But I, I don't know when exactly that would have that would have happened. But it was, you know, looking back in one of the gaffes of, at the gaffes of history, that really was a, a big hiccup there because there was a there was a not insignificant amount of time where nobody knew who the shot caller could have been. Um, but again, that's those are things that have been. You know, we talk about things that were fixed because if those are things that have that have been fixed and even with our succession planning that we do as the Secret Service, we drill and practice that all the time. Um, I was fortunate to be part of that program where, you know, if something significant happens, we're going to go grab the sec- all the secretaries and make sure they're secure and in case they're the only person left to, to run the government. If I remember correctly as well, because um, I learned it from you. Uh, one of the changes you mentioned that John Hinckley Jr. was able to ascertain the president's schedule from the newspaper, which at that point was printed every day for everyone to see where he was going to be exactly at what time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that too was a change made, which was that they stopped publishing his schedule in the newspaper with that level of detail, right? Yeah, that that was one. And then um, if you go back to uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, when President Kennedy was assassinated, they actually published the motorcade route. They put a big map on the on the page of the paper and with arrows and shows you exactly where he was going. So the Secret Service has a great working relationship with the press. I know for some reason there was always the I don't know if it if it was because sometimes we got lumped in with the whole White House, that there was uh, this idea that we had this um, confrontational relationship with the press. But we never did. We always worked very well together. And when when we asked for concessions like that, they were they were more than willing, you know, plus. You know, the other part is, like I mentioned earlier, when when they were very good about policing themselves and saying, hey, we don't think this guy belongs in our group. They don't want to be the reason that somebody's able to infiltrate security because they weren't uh, on top of their game either and noticing who should be around and who shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So it was it was always a good relationship. Yeah. But, you know, you'll you'll have events like if the president is coming to say he's going to coming here to Pittsburgh or going to Cleveland. You know, you'll know it. They'll they'll tell you on the morning news about the traffic restrictions and the road closures and everything else. But they're never going to tell you like like was in D.C. Like, here's his schedule for the day. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, stuff like that has has come to an end. We'll be right back with more of this story. How many people, unless this is classified, are on that class three list at any given time or on average? So when I was doing that, there were 70. 70. Um, yeah, there were there were people both in the United States and outside the United States. And now I know we were moving like I was moving. There was one person who I was working with 
some folks um, in the in the mental health profession to to take them off because it was someone who had. It, long story short, he had written a couple of letters, showed up at some places, but was was under enough care and was getting enough um, family support, medical support, mental health support, and everything else that we really didn't deem that person to be a, a threat anymore. But it was it was the big names. It you know. Um, even people we had nothing to nothing to do with, like I mentioned earlier, like Charles Manson and mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, it was my mind. Who shot John John Lennon? Um, oh, um, I, I I'm not going to remember because I always think of the the books the books yeah. name that he was um, following. Oh yeah, Holden called Caulfield. Holden Caulfield. Yeah, which Caulfield. is yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he he was on the list too, just because he showed the propensity to attack right uh, public figures right. So. Um, yeah, so we, we did that. And then the other thing we'll do is whenever the president goes somewhere, like when the president comes to New York, if there are any class threes in, in the New York City area, we'll have agents go sit on them Copy. and and make sure we know exactly where they are all the time. We're not going to keep our fingers crossed and hope. In fact, they'll even do stuff like some of them, if they live in areas where the president would go a lot, they just got so used to the expectation of agents showing up that like the agents would be like, hey, let's go to the movies. <laughs> And, you know, you end up coming out of pocket for, you know, 10 bucks for a movie ticket, but you know where they are all the time. Right. And that's, that's the big thing. And you're keeping them occupied. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you look at the history of, of assassinations and assassination attempts, you know, we're, we're certainly not a third world country, but we're fortunate, you know, that since Secret Service Protection started in, in 19 started for the president, we've only lost one president. Uh, and that was President Kennedy. Only two, two have been shot. But you look at the attempts. Like there were two attempts on President Ford within two weeks. There was, um, you know, a, a guy showed up with a bomb vest at the Kennedys had a house out in in the Middleburg area of Virginia where they go to on the weekend. And this guy pulls up and he jumps on. He has a bomb vest on, and they were able to get the first family away from him. Um, and then you you really talk about all the plots that the secret service in, in working with the, our intelligence partners, you know, the CIA, NSA, folks like that, that, that we're able to find out about and step in front of and including one from uh, last year where a guy wanted to kill former president Bush. Um, you know, former president Bush still has a $30 million bounty on his head from the Iraqi government. So this guy thought he was going to, he was an Iraqi uh, foreign national. He was going to kill the president his family back in Iraq was going to get this $30 million. So, the the one big thing I always go back to, and I and I is one of the things I do on the side is, you know, I teach about active shooting, and, and I teach, um, I talk to families and, and companies about you know just general safety and security, and one of the things I go back to is if you go all the way back to Lee Harvey Oswald, everybody that tried to hurt a president, whether it was Samuel Bick wanted to crash a plane and he tried to hijack a plane in nineteen I think it was nineteen seventy four and crash it into the white house. Um, you know, all, all these names I could list the, the 20 names. There was only one person that we had heard of before they made their attempt. And that was Sarah Jane Moore. Um, she had made some threats. Uh, she was interviewed by a secret service agent. He deemed her not to be a threat. Unfortunately, and a couple of weeks later, she, she took a shot at president Ford and tried to kill him. And my, my point to that is that the person who's really smart about it, and is really going to do damage to you, you're never going to hear from them and you might never see them coming. Like nobody saw John Hinckley coming. Except for um, the arrest with the gun on the plane right. at the same town that Carter was in. Yeah. But I I just don't think that the Nashville police didn't put two and two together. Right. They just figured he was, he was a dummy who forgot to take his gun out of his bag. Two so. final questions. Sure. Oh, and also it was Mark David Chapman. Chapman. Mark David Chapman. Thanks to my team. <laughs> that was not my brain. Um, uh, where is that bullet? Is it still in evidence or did someone take it for posterity? I, I guarantee you, no, it's still in evidence somewhere. In fact, um, the file on John Hinckley is there's a room. It's probably one of the one of the file rooms in our intelligence division. It's probably these shelves are probably 15 feet long. And his file was four of these 14, 15 foot shelves. And one of the things I endeavored to do during my time there is his case agent was go through it. And if there was stuff that, you know, could be thrown out, like if there was a a photo, an evidence photo 
there was 40 of them, like 40 copies. Right. That was because back when it was done, that was how they did it. Well, we realized we kind of need all that. <laughs> so that bullet's somewhere still in evidence. In fact, the door, the, the pane of glass that was taken out that the fourth shot hit is in the Secret Service Museum in our headquarters. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's sitting there on display along with um, a replica of the gun that John Hinckley used because uh, that's, you know, that's still in evidence and everything. So, but, mm-hmm. but the files I got to go through, I, I, one of the reasons Charles Manson reasons we kept tabs on Charles Manson was because he would always write letters to the president. And I remember at one point holding in my hands, these handwritten letters that Charles Manson wrote to president Carter. And they weren't, you know, they weren't anything really coherent and just more rants than anything else. But I remember thinking like, Holy crap, like this is Charles Manson's handwriting. You know, so it was, you know, again, kind of surreal and humbling to be able to hold that, that piece of history. Well, and touching evil, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. Um, And and reading it. Yeah. yeah. The reason I asked is because it was my understanding that president Reagan asked for the bullet and that he was, he, he, it was declared the, the request was declined because yeah. it was evidence. So sorry, Mr. President, you can't yeah. have that for posterity. This has to remain in evidence. If, if I could comment on that, when we talk about the bullet, so John Hinckley, the gun that he used was, um, it was a Rome 25. It was a Saturday night special. It was a little, mm. little 22 caliber pistol that has no, like, you're not going to target shoot with it. Like, it was just a gun to cause trouble or maybe something that like a cop would wear on his ankle as a backup weapon, just to, if he had to use it to save his life. If John Hinckley would have brought within that day, a 357 Magnum, we would be talking about a dead president and four dead people. Cause well, mm. t- Tim McCarthy may have been able to survive his wounds, but certainly, you know, Mr. Brady getting shot in the head would have been dead. Officer Delahanty, Officer Delahanty still has the bullet in his neck. They couldn't extract it because it would have damaged his, his, spinal cord he would have been dead and the president even on a ricochet a bullet that big would have would have traversed both his lungs and his heart and (sighs) and he would have been dead so a little bit lucky you know for all the things that were done right and everything was done right tactically that day and and we could say like hey stupid his luck that he got a ricochet well you know good our luck that that he didn't bring a bigger gun to the fight too so um, yes, yeah, so we were fortunate that day. Right. Sometimes bad things happen. So worse things don't, you could say. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Final brief question. Yeah. You mentioned how strategy and presentation of the president has now changed and he enters and egresses buildings that now covered and you build tents, et cetera. You protected presidents from HW through president Trump. President Trump was notorious for walking around independently and, you know, approaching the press corps, approaching uh, wide open areas, let's say. So how, what unique issue, if any, did that pose to Secret Service at that time? And was that difficult for you to manage, uh, again, without giving away your classified strategy, but yeah. um, was that hard for you guys? Well, actually, um, if I could just make one small correction, I actually started under President Clinton. So um, oh, we saw President Clinton, who was also a very gregarious, you know, he was a hugger. Uh, the Obamas right. were huggers and, and, and look, they all, they all need to be themselves and they have this big personality. And, um, look, it does get frustrating. Like I remember one time we were walking in the, um, St. Patrick's day parade in Chicago with mm-hmm. president Bush. And, you know, it, it's mostly scripted that, sir, you're going to get out of the limousine here and you're going to get back in here. And everybody in that two blocks or whatever will have been through metal detectors. So we know that we're safe. Well, he decided to keep walking and, you know, it's not ideal. Um, it's, it, it certainly makes you feel a little bit naked in some ways, but what it also does. And the, and the thing I love about it is it really gives us the opportunity to use our training. Mm. So if all we did was stay in the white house, all this training we did would be, would be wasted. It would, it would, it's perishable. So it would go away. So when you have those moments where he goes over to a crowd or, you know, decides to give a hug or something like that. It, it, it really, um, it really gives you that opportunity to use your training again, not ideal. And, um, and you can feel it like you feel the buzz of like, okay, this isn't where we want to be. Right. But, but again, the opportunity to use your training and the opportunity to be, to be right there. And and you'll see it too. Like you, you'll see those moments where if you ever watch a parade where we're spread out or even in an, the difference of a rope line where 
it's a bunch of high dollar donors and senators and congressmen and their wives at a Christmas party. And you don't even see us in the shot compared to when he goes to Ben's Chili Bowl on an <laughs> off the record movement. And we are like right. so close. Right. You, know, you can really see the the contraction and expansion of the protection based on whether we're in somewhere where we believe is secure or whether we're not. Fascinating. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to age you by a hundred years. I That's think it's okay. because of the, your awesome story with HW in the hallway with Barbara that one time. So anyway, so in my oh, head, <laughs> yeah. I know you're only 21, Jeff. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Um, well, listen, I could listen to you forever. I'm yeah. so grateful for this. I'm sure what is the tip of the iceberg of this story for you, but just sharing what you've shared today has been massively educating so rewarding, such a deep insight into history and into the service that you men and women of the Secret Service uh, play when you will are willing to sacrifice your lives and your limbs on behalf of the President of the United States, which represents all of us. So thank you for your service and oh, thank you for joining me today. No, it was my pleasure. Now, you know, I'll, you've heard me say many times, I was blessed and fortunate to do it. You know, I'm, I grew up as a, you know, almost a dirt poor kid from from Pittsburgh and, and they, I spent 22 years where they let me walk into the white house and it was just, it was a, a real, a real blessing. And, and, uh, my, my little version of the American dream, to be honest with you. So, well, it was their privilege to have you there and our privilege to have you today, my friend. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.